Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to the Leaving Eden podcast. My name is Gavriel Hakoen. And I'm cult expert Sadie Carpenter. Before we get into the topic of this episode, I just want to say one thing real quick. Yes, I got all your messages. I know the name of the river is Schuylkill. Not Skykill. Were you saying it wrong on purpose? Yes. If you were a longtime listener of this show. Like a really, really longtime listener. That from time to time, I intentionally mispronounce words just because I think that people will get annoyed by them. And this was, is such a, since moving to, I, I, I figured out, I figured out how to pronounce stuff properly before I moved to Philadelphia, guys. I'm not an idiot. Well, I can but, tell you, you successfully annoy at least one person when you do that. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, I got emails. I got um, posts on Facebook. I got Instagram messages. I got Twitter tweets. I got like I, I like every social media platform that there is that you can send people messages on. I got messages from people telling me that I mispronounced the name of the river. So uh, did you get the attention you wanted? Yes, it was Great. very funny. Um, <laughs> but no, I, 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 I anyway, uh, today's uh, now that I've gotten that out of the way, today's episode. It's been a while since we've done one of these. Uh, this is a the first part of a two part episode. But if you remember a year ago, we did an episode about a guy named John Todd, uh, who we realized was kind of one of the originators of the satanic panic together with Jack Chick. But there was another guy named Mike Warnke, who basically came around at the same time with the same story as John Todd and also got popularity as a Christian speaker. 
I've been wanting to do an episode on Mike Warnke ever since we did the John Todd episode because that was one of my favorites ever. So I read Warnke's book, which is called The Satan Seller, and we then found a article by Christian magazine Cornerstone that refutes some of his claims, and we thought, great, we'll do an episode on Mike Warnke. And then we realized that <laughs> this episode was going to be four hours long. So what we've done is we've made it a two-part episode. Today, we will be talking about what he says in his book, The Satan Seller. And then next next week, we'll come back and debate the authenticity of his claims. And then we're going to debate whether or not we think that it was John Todd or Mike Warnke who actually came up with the story, because these stories are remarkably similar. As you guys all know, the Leaving Eden podcast is the podcast about my BFF and co-host, Sadie Carpenter's life in and escape from the independent fundamental Baptist cult, the cult in which she was raised. We talk about this cult. We talk about other cults. We talk about religion. We talk about fundamentalism. We talk about the real and present threat that cults and cult ideologies pose to society as a whole. And it is our goal to promote freedom of mind, freedom of thought, and freedom of religion. So if you like our show, if you are a fan of our show, please consider subscribing to our Patreon where there will be an extended version of today's episode as well as extended versions of most of our other episodes as well as bonus content. So if you are new to this show and you haven't heard our review of the Christian Fundamentalist Sex Manual, uh, then that is available only for our patrons. Uh, and so that is really fun. And you can check all that stuff out at patreon.com slash leaving Eden podcast. You can join our Facebook group, which is facebook.com slash groups slash Eden Exodus. You can join our subreddit, which is reddit.com slash r slash Eden Exodus. We also have a Q&A episode coming up next month. So if you have a question that you want to hear answered on the show, please, please, please email it to us at leavingedenpod at gmail.com. That is leavingedenpod at gmail.com. And we may answer your question on a podcast episode coming up soon. So that would be super fun. Um, and we do love doing a good mailbag episode. Anything else, Sadie, before I thank our patrons? I think that's it for now. Okay. Well, we have two I Gave It All tier patrons, and they are Melissa Mosley and Kathleen Moncrief. You guys are truly incredible, and we do deeply depend on the contributions that you guys give us every month that allow us to make this show happen. We also have many uh, Faith Promise Missions tier patrons. Your names are Alex Todd, Alicia Guild, Ali Allen, Anisha Patel, Brittany, Brooke Tully, Krissa, Crystal Patterson, Dear Ethan Hansen the Musical, Eleanor Donahue, Emery Fairlosser, Hannah Ross, Hope Norum, Horton Hears a Shane, I'm just here to send Sadie True Crime Podcast Suggestions, a.k.a. Meg, Janine Collin, Jen Kaharski, Jessica Tambo, Jonna K. Terwee, Kristen Marie, Lauren Vanderwall, Linda Morgan, Lindsay Goss, Lorena Watson, MC Crunchwrap, hashtag The Boy Who Cried Sauce, Michaela Upright, Madeline Cusick, Marlene Stuve. Mary Williams, Mary Martin, Megan Arendt, Rob the Methodist, Sarah Reese, Scooby Sleuth, Stephanie Johnson, Susie, Tara McNamara, 
Tiffany Enderby, Walnut Walnutson, and as always, Wes the Cowboy. Thank you so much to all of our I Gave It All and Faith Promise Missions to your patrons. And to all of our patrons over on Patreon. Uh, we have a real good time over there. Sadie, hit us with that TW and then we'll get right into the episode. This uh, this TW is pretty long, <laughs> just so you know. Oh, God. Yeah. Uh, in general, we talk about a lot of potentially triggering topics on this show, including but not limited to suicide and mental health, racism, misogyny, PTSD, PTSD symptoms, child abuse, mental, physical, and sexual abuse, and spiritual abuse, including guilt, shame, and fear. In most episodes, we will naturally mention one or more of these topics. We do avoid any graphic detail unless it's relevant to the story that we're telling on that day. And if we are going to include that detail, we will give you as the audience the heads up so that you can skip ahead if needed. In this episode, we are discussing the satanic panic and claims of satanic ritual abuse, as well as a lot of drug use and brief mentions of a uh, suicide contemplation, the suicide in question was not completed, and domestic violence. Generally, so... Mike Warnke said that he did a lot of drugs. How we are going to handle that, we know we have listeners who may be in recovery or may be triggered by that for other reasons. So what we're doing in this episode, we'll mention the names of the substances that he said he was on and the effects that he said he experienced. We will not describe his methods of use or anything graphic like that. There is one point in the episode where we describe an alleged sexual assault I say alleged because it is Warnke who claimed that it happened. There is no evidence that it ever actually happened. I don't personally believe that it did. <clears throat> there is no victim claiming to, there's no person claiming to be the victim here. Uh, in that instance, we are also going to avoid, avoid any detail because even a story that I believe Warnke fully made up could still be triggering to people. There is also a good amount in this episode of general witchcraft-type spookiness, alleged blood drinking, that sort of thing. A few little gross-out moments. We don't believe it happened, so we're not treating it as truthful, but it will come up, and I'll give you a quick heads-up before those things come up in my notes so that anybody who does need to skip can skip. We always want our listeners to feel empowered to use that skip button for any reason. If there's anything that's going to be an issue for you, I don't want to hurt you with my words. So in April of last year, we talked about the, the, the story of John Todd, which can be found in episode 78 um, titled from the Illuminati to the IFB, the fantastic lies of John Todd. And this is a, a John Todd, basically. Sadie, do you want to give us basically a recap of the the yarn that this man spun? Sure. How long do we have? Not long. Okay. John Todd was a born again evangelist who came on the scene in the Jesus movement around the year 1972 with a shocking message. Todd claimed that he had been a former Grand Druid priest but had since converted to Christianity, and now he was traveling through churches, primarily IFB and other Baptist churches, spreading his story of conversion and grifting, oh, sorry, uh, raising money 
for a new ministry that he was starting, which was basically a detox for recovering Satanists. John Todd claimed to be saved in part because of the ministry of Jack Chick, and those two became strong allies. Chick used Todd as a source for a lot of his wildest and most specific claims about Satanists and Satanism. Chick also bailed Todd out of jail on one occasion when Todd had a backslide that involved not only returning to Satanism and witchcraft and opening a magic store, but also using said magic store as a way to groom and molest teenage girls. John Todd continued uh, to follow this pattern for at least a decade. So he would hit the Christian scene, make big waves, make some money with his story, and then he'd backslide back into witchcraft and then usually uh, get in some kind of legal trouble. And then he would go back to Christianity and now he's got an even bigger story to tell. And he did that kind of back and forth until he really hit the big time in Christianity around 1978. No matter which team Todd was playing for at the moment, he was pretty much always preying on teenage girls and young women. And eventually his crimes caught up to him and he went in jail. He went to jail in the early 80s and died in prison a few years later. Now, while John Todd had a major ally in Jack Chick, Todd wasn't universally liked or trusted among Christians. Perhaps his most famous rivalry was Mike Warnke, who is the topic of our episode today. Mike Warnke had an extremely similar story. Extremely similar. With the biggest difference being that Warnke's reported crimes against women are all related to domestic violence and that he had consensual affairs with women as opposed to John Todd. Warnke's story was published first in the 1972 book The Satan Seller. I draw attention to the publishing year because that's going to be a whole thing. Warnke and John Todd came on the scene right around the same time in the same area in California. Their stories were so similar that there was once reportedly a physical fight between the two as they accused each other of stealing each other's stories. This is so fascinating and this is so funny to me. My question is, uh, what do we know about Mike Warnke that we don't also know about John Todd? We have a lot more background about Mike Warnke's life outside of his wild Satanism story because John Todd doesn't tell us anything about his life before he turned 18. He just tells us that he was born into this legacy witchcraft Illuminati family. Mike Warnke actually gives us his life story. Let's get into The Satan Seller. I read this entire book <laughs> over the last week, and I've made some pretty extensive notes. I have a lot of pull quotes to share with you. I think you're going to find this guy as interesting as I do. <laughs> I'm excited. Let's get into it. So, Mike Warnke was born in 1946 in Tennessee. Warnke's mother, he says, was, quote, the only one who ever cared about me. She was a good Christian lady who married his father knowing that she would be his father's fifth wife. His father was a lifelong criminal and a drunk who was involved in shady business dealings and openly cheated on Mike's mother more so after his mother was injured in a car accident. His mother died when he was nine years old, and then his father died when he was 12. 
This left him to live with his aunts, his mother's sisters, for a short time before being sent to live in San Bernardino, California, with his half-sister and her husband. His Protestant aunts were very concerned about him being sent to California because his new foster family were Catholics. Here's another quote from the book. You are going into a Catholic home, and we can't help that. We know you'll be tempted, son. (laughs) Man. Although they may not have been wrong because this (laughs) this entire bit about Catholicism sounds pretty gay. Uh, (laughs) So, first, Warren Key talks about a priest who, quote, had a beautiful voice and was a former professional football player. Mike says, for both reasons, I looked up to him as an idol, but I was too awed to talk to him. That is not all that suspicious in and of itself. On the same page, he describes in detail the decor of the Catholic Church. That paragraph ends with this quote, and the finely chiseled figure of Jesus on the cross. Sexy. Yeah, uh, he got <laughs> rocked by sexy Jesus, for sure. Warnke was really attracted to the smells and bells of Catholicism, the incense and the decor and the candles and the Latin, uh, which is fine. He got super into Catholicism for a while, but his by his last couple years in high school, he had a girlfriend who was more interesting to him than church was. He felt pretty guilty about that, but not that guilty, apparently. Here's a quote about his high school girlfriend, supposedly. There were many hideaways in the mountainous area in which we live, and this girl seemed to know all of them. And that's not all she knew. She knew things that made me so excited it was like being drunk. (laughs) Towards the end of high school and thereafter, Wernke said that he got very into alcohol. He was uh, drinking to excess, making himself sick. He was spending time in these hippie coffee houses kind of just before the Jesus movement in the coffee houses. The way he describes the summer after high school, it's like the perfect ideal that we all have of the early 60s. If he was born in 1946, we can estimate that this would have been the summer of 1964. And this sounds amazing. (laughs) See, that's interesting. Because if it was the summer of 1964, that seems a little bit early for the hippie coffee houses to have been that mainstream. It does, but he was in San Bernardino, California. So that seems like an area of the country that maybe would have had that kind of place before other places did. Huh. There's also, he's describing the places that he was visiting as hippie coffee houses. When we get to testimonies from people who actually knew him, they may have just been like regular coffee houses that he has imagined in his own mind were hippie coffee houses. We'll get to that. One really interesting tidbit here that I think says so much about Mike Warnke is that he talks about in these coffee houses, he liked to pretend to have a British accent. And apparently one time he did this for eight months and fooled a lot of people. Just Wow. Keep that little fact top of mind as we continue on. I mean, he's basically just telling everybody, yeah, I'm really good at lying. That's not the only time he's going to do this in this book. Pretending to be a really good actor. Like, man. Yeah. Uh, He tells us that he's a good liar. 
multiple times in this book. And this entire uh, first section, as I'm telling you what I read in this book, I am just telling you what he says about himself. So he says that he was still going to religion classes through the Catholic Church, although he perceived that he was asking questions that the priest didn't want to answer. My perception is that he was just obtuse and annoying. Warnke also took issue with what he perceived as a lack of financial transparency in his parish, which is a much fairer critique, in my opinion. That is actually a problem. So here's a quote from Mike on kind of a, a shift in identity before starting college. Before I started college, I went down to the Salvation Army and the Goodwill stores and bought some clothes. My hair was down to my collar by now, and the outfits that I picked up went perfectly with long hair. I bought an old 1920s suit, several spotted shirts, weird pants, and anything I could get my hands on that looked different. My favorite outfit was this blanket sewn up on either side. That really attracted attention. Most of the attention came from the chicks. And needless to say, I did not turn it down. Uh, is a blanket sewn up on the side? That's, yep, that's what he says. That's the outfit that gets you action in 1965. Man, I, I feel like our grandparents are like really embarrassing. Like it's <laughs> 20 or in 20 years, like people are going to look back and they're just going to be like, why are your eyebrows gone and like drawn on right. with a pen? <laughs> Well, all trends are eventually embarrassing, but I don't think any yeah. of our trends today are quite as embarrassing as a blanket sewn up down the sides. I also don't think Mike Warnke uh, ever wore that for reasons that no. we will get to. So as college at San, San Bernardino Valley College continued, Warnke, was consi he, Warnke says that he was consistently getting sick from the amount of alcohol he was drinking until someone introduced him to the wonderful world of cannabis. He writes about lying on the grass in the quad, talking about big topics while smoking a joint, which again kind of seems like an idealized, perfect depiction of what we all want to imagine the 1960s were like. You know, if you take out all the, all the sexism and the racism and the horrible things and the war and all that, I think this is what we all want to fantasize about. And that's what he's selling in this book. Yeah, but also, like, I find it highly unlikely that somebody would just go from, like, oh, I used to do alcohol. Now I got into weed and I don't drink any. Like, those, are, th those two drugs affect you in very different ways. And you could do like both together and it wouldn't like, I mean, it, it's not like. Eh, I think people, people sometimes use less dangerous substances to cope with getting off of more dangerous substances. And I've known people who quit drinking and just went California sober and it was good for them. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the thing, the point that I'm trying to make is that I feel like, what he's doing is he's trying to build a slippery slope narrative. Where that it's like, is well, exactly started, what he's trying to do. I got started with alcohol, but then I moved into the really heavy stuff like marijuana. And then I started doing heroin. Like that's where this is clearly going. That's exactly know? what happens. <clears throat> Warnke says that after getting into cannabis, he immediately got into peyote 
and other interesting hallucinogenic psycho- psychedelics <laughs> and he volunteered for a campus acid test run by none other than timothy leary he goes on to talk about good trips and bad trips and like what his drug experience was like he then makes a very very swift moralizing turn quote We now know that flashbacks which occur after a bad LSD trip have caused quite a few deaths. Uh, In the book, he says that Diane Linkletter's death was caused by an LSD flashback, which is a common urban legend. According to Snopes, there was no acid in her system at the time of her death. And uh, as I've said on the show before, acid flashbacks in the way that we have seen them conceptualized in movies and media are extremely, extremely rare. Other question about this. Does his description of his own experiences seem like they were written by somebody who has ever touched that drug in their life? Or is it entirely just like repeating the myths that people have heard for an audience that clearly already believes those myths? Okay, let me open up the book here. It was not long before someone introduced me to peyote, which had been brought up from Mexico. By this time, I was smoking pot like mad, turning on in the morning, at noon, and when I got home from classes. I was really starting to live, I thought. When we tried the peyote, we decided it was better and heavier than pot. We also started eating mescaline in our food in increasing quality, in increasing quantities. And from there, we... (laughs) He says he's putting mescaline in his food. You can't do that. Also, like, mescaline is not, like, from from my impression is that it is not or was not ever, like, particularly easy to come by. It's not like a f- everyday-ass hallucinogen. Well, apparently, <coughs> uh, Mike Warnke says that he was sprinkling it in his food in, like, 1965. I don't know. That's not what you're supposed to do. That's going to, like, it's... So I can also read you a little bit about what he says about LSD, which is maybe more believable. Yeah, tell me. After you go through the first stages of the dilated pupils, the faster heartbeat, a feeling of coldness, your sight becomes blurred and your depth perception makes like an accordion. The doctor held up something for us to see and it looked far away then close. I even begin to hear different objects. They told us later that a person's sensations may cross over, like you might see sound and music as a pattern or color instead of hearing it. And not only are your senses jumbled up, but all of nature's safety valves are tied down, and you begin to hear conversations far away and feel the faintest vibrations vastly amplified. All of which is exciting at first, but then you'd like to show it off. But then you'd like to shut it off. Only you can't. Ah. Uh, I at least believe that he talked to someone who has done acid. I mean, maybe he copied that out of a book somewhere, but like I uh, the, like I, I don't a guy who like has ever done acid is also not a guy who would ever talk about, yeah, we uh, ate peyote on our cereal on our breakfast cereal just to like f- around and do like you can't do that. That's why. No. So let's go back to what he says about himself. Yeah. We'll get into the doubts more later. Warnke says that he then got into harder drugs. He started selling drugs to pay for his own habit. And then just when he was starting to get in over his head with all of that, 
his dealer, Dean, offered to introduce him to some friends who really had the answers. Quote, These people are into something a whole lot deeper than anything you've been playing around with. Like, they will turn you on to a new power without drugs. Dun-dun-dun, witchcraft! (laughs) (laughs) I would like to take this moment to point Uh. out two things. First, the similarities between his story and John Todd's story in relation to the drug use... I don't know if everybody was just using drugs in the 60s and or what, but there is a stunning similarity, especially in the terminology that they use, the the slang that they use for the drugs that they were supposedly doing and the way that they describe their usage. Also, though, the offer to turn you on to the real power, that is almost directly quoted in one of Jack Chick's comic books. See, the difference between John Todd and Mike Warnke is that I don't think that Mike Warnke has touched hard drugs in his life. And I would be shocked if like a week in John Todd's life went by when he wasn't on amphetamines or on something. Because that dude was f***ing nuts. So Warnke says that he was invited at that point to a house party. This house party was held at a beautiful, expensive house and was attended by young, beautiful people in their late teens, early 20s. They all sat around and talked and then, quote, they started pairing off in couples only. I do not mean going anywhere. They stayed and did it right there. They were not engaged in conventional lovemaking either. They did things that even I had not heard about before, nor even dreamed of in an LSD fantasy. <laughs> See, I'm confused by this. because, Like, what specifically is he talking about? I don't know. Or, or maybe it's just like, you know how the fundies always say, use your imagination in their sex books? Right. What, is it just like different positions? Is he just like... In his like, own timeline, he was 18 at this point in a world without the internet. So it makes sense. Maybe there were some things he didn't know. Guess. So Warnke started regularly attending these house parties. I am about to inflict a horrible quote on you. I'm so sorry, but it's it's relevant, I promise. <laughs> quote, I was on a sex bender greater than any bag I had ever tried before. No sick stomach, no shakes, no flashbacks, no weird freaky feeling of junk between your nerve ends and your bones. Just soft pink sex. More Ugh. and more. And always enough there to satisfy you. I think that based on this sentence, it is uh, there is a very real possibility that it, at the time when Mike Warnke wrote this down, that he had never had any experience with sex whatsoever. This is like, you know, 40-year-old virgin when yeah. he's like, it's like squeezing a bag of sand. Like that's <laughs> right. This is like Mike Warnke's bag of sand quote. That's um. uh, by this point, he's supposedly had two kids who supposedly actually exist outside of his fantasy book that he wrote. Oh, okay. So he's yep. just gross. Like, he's just gross. Yeah. <laughs> Warnke gradually found out that the people he was having uh, sex orgies with were Satan worshippers, but he didn't really care because what he had was all the drugs and the girls he could possibly want, and that was his main focus in life as an 18-year-old, 19-year-old kid. He became more involved with this Satanism sex party scene, which apparently involved 
a lot of drug running up from Mexico, uh, which is another similarity between the John Todd story and the Mike Warnke story. Both of them claim that the primary financial backing for the Satanists comes from drug trafficking. Warnke said that he would do regular drug pickup and delivery deals for Dean, for which Dean gave him drugs to support his own habits. As Mike became more trusted, he was allowed into more exclusive meetings called secondary meetings, where there were basically satanic church services and teachings about different types of witchcraft lore. Here's yet another quote. (laughs) You could even specialize, like picking a major at college. There were students of Satanism utilizing the power of the devil through worship, demonology, summoning different demons, the devil's helpers, necromancy, communication with the dead by the conjuring up of spirits, vampirism, belief in vampires, blood-sucking ghosts, lycanthropy, assumption of the form and traits of a wolf via witchcraft. (laughs) And this is where this story really started to fall apart for me because, like... I can believe that, like, if this dude didn't do LSD, maybe he had a roommate who did or something and just copied his story. I can even believe that, like, he awkwardly stood in the corner at a 60s sex party one time. What I cannot believe is that anyone was seriously studying how to become a werewolf werewolf through witchcraft. Um <laughs> If there were real Satanists with real satanic power who were controlling the world and making money off of drugs and doing horrible sacrifices, why would they be trying to become werewolves? What's what's the what's the benefit to the satanic mega organization if somebody is able to become a werewolf? I don't know, because it's like cool, I guess. Like <laughs> No. I mean, it's it's a cool it's a cool ability. There are not students of Satanism studying how to become a werewolf or a vampire. Now, if I could become an animal, you know what I do? I become a cat, and then I'd go live in somebody's house and just get them to feed me and lie in the sun all day. That sounds amazing. Honestly, though, maybe this is where J.K. Rowling got the idea for uh, a school of witchcraft. Is she <laughs> Satan seller? <laughs> she, she yeah, she does Lord. like made up stories that demonize groups of the population. Oh man. Hey, yo. After gaining trust in the secondary meetings, Warnke was invited to the third level of witchcraft with his dealer and now magical mentor, Dean. He describes uh, one of these early ceremonies that he attended as follows. In the center of the circle was the altar, a granite slab supported on two sawhorses. On the slab, a girl lay on her back, nude and waiting, her skin glowing red in the light given off by candles and the bale fire burning in a crucible nearby. An inverted cross and an image of the goat's head stood at each end of the altar. You know, that's not a half bad description. Yeah. That's that's maybe a, a little bit better writing than I expected from this book. He goes on to describe a black mass, saying that Nightshade was being burned in a crucible to get everyone high. One member of the coven had a grievance with a guy from Corona, California, whose kid got into witchcraft and was supposedly trying to get the FBI and a congressional investigation opened. All of the members of the coven prayed to Satan for this man to be afflicted, and Warnke saw a demonic spirit float out of the pentagram and fly off to afflict this guy. He was enthralled by the idea of having that kind of witchcraft power. 
R.I.P. to that guy. Another guy <laughs> that was cursed. So apparently this little cursing session was a thing that happened at every coven meeting. Uh, there's a later story of a different guy that they curse and his kids were supposedly afflicted by demons in the form of boils on their skin, which is just another one of those little facts that I want you to uh hold on to for later. Finally, Warnke says that he was inducted into a coven. He describes the ritual in which they had one censer burning with belladonna, one with cannabis, and one with sulfur. They had him strip and kneel in the middle of a pentagram, and they meditated while hotboxing the barn, waiting for Satan to pass approval on him. Once Dean felt that Satan approved of Warnke, they gave him his witchcraft name, Judas Iscariot. And then they dressed him in a hood and a robe and they dedicated a scorpion necklace for him to wear because he is a Scorpio. Wait, so his witchcraft name is Judas Iscariot. Evidently. But Judas Iscariot is a character in the Bible. Yes. He's the guy that betrays Jesus. They just gave him the same name as a guy who was already like, what? Right. I, I don't know. This doesn't make any sense. What if you, I mean, you can't be like... Is like, oh, your name is Judas, but, but Judas Iscariot, that's already a guy. If you're going to give somebody a, wit a witchcraft name, give them a different witchcraft name. Then what's interesting is he like, he doesn't uh. give us anybody else's witchcraft names. Like none of the other characters that are into this witchcraft stuff get their witchcraft names in the book. Yeah, do they call each other by their witchcraft names or is it just like, no, oh, they don't call Dean. each other by their witchcraft names. Yeah. It seems useless. So get this, next he was given a demon ring to wear. Oh man, just like Dinah's. Just like Dinah's. Maybe we can get a hold of Mike's demon ring and then we can get Dinah's demon ring and like compare the two and see which one. You know, this you book gayer. never tells us what he did with the demon ring when he was done having demons. Um, it does tell us that during this initiation ceremony, he noticed that Dean, his mentor, had an even more special demonic ring with more demons, and he wanted one like that because he had seen the kind of power that Dean had to curse people and draw up spirits and all this kind of thing. So finally, as a part of this initiation, Warnke repeated a pledge to give Satan his soul and then signed his name in a book with his own blood. Uh, Dean showed him the list of names that were already in the book, and a few of the names had turned green. Dean told him that this is what happens when somebody cops out and leaves Satanism and that Satan really doesn't like it when you give Satan your soul and then go back on that and that those people are cursed by Satan. Scary stuff. After being initiated into this third stage, Warnke had an experience mixing potions with a witch named Teresa. She really went off on him about how not only does the recipe have to be completely correct to get the potion to work, but the astrology has to be right. You can only do it at certain seasons and certain times of the day. Even the exact minute has to be exactly right to get this witchcraft to work, which makes me wonder what happens if your clock is off. Teresa showed him a scar behind her ear, which she says is what happens when she pissed off a demon by not doing things exactly right. Teresa performed a wishing spell and let Mike make the wish. He says, uh, he says that his wish was for her to fall down on her knees to the floor and beg him to have sex with her. 
and that the wishing spell came true and she was pretty mad at him for that and then he decided not to have sex with her because that seemed non-consensual wow basically. um rare dub for uh <laughs> for mike warnke no this does sound like she he's using like severus snape's potions glass yeah this is like man no i i get why like now that we're looking at this i get why the fundies were just like yo harry potter that shit is is witchcraft that shit is sinful because right, they because read they've it all and read like, oh, this book yeah and they're like this is exactly what mike warnke told us it would be she's a real satanist this um, is nutty so this after is- this potions class Dean approaches Warnke and says that it's it's time for him to escalate his drug dealing into more of a satanic. <laughs> Sorry, I wrote this line and I can't. <laughs> uh, Dean then approaches Mike and tells him that it is time for him to escalate his drug dealing into more of a satanic multi-level marketing scheme (laughs) (laughs) so what mike is supposed to do is he's supposed to start recruiting people for these sex parties and then like guide them up the chain of witchcraft the same way that he was so he gets people to come to the sex parties and then he helps choose the people who get to move on to the secondary meetings and choose the people who get to move into the third level of witchcraft how he was supposed to do this was he would meet a bunch of college students because although he had dropped out of college by this time, he was dealing drugs on campus. And according to Mike Warnke, the the students who used to go to school with him called him the professor. And he would sit under this one particular tree out on the lawn and smoke weed all day. And people would come up and ask him for homework help or relationship help or life advice. And he was basically like a guru for these other college students, which sounds very legit. He definitely did that. And people, everybody loved me and I was so respected. And I thought, and everyone who knew me thought I was the best. Do you remember when I told the story about a Hiles Anderson college student, the, a guy that I went to school with, who uh, came up to me at breakfast one day and told him that the Lord laid it on his heart that he was supposed to be my dating counselor and he was no. going to counsel me? <laughs> I don't remember this. I What I do remember was you told me that one time a guy came up to you at breakfast and said that uh, like during your fall from grace and he... he said some other was this the same guy or was this, this is different? the same guy he said that the lord laid it on his heart to be my dating counselor and to help me decide who to date and who to marry uh this is this is what i see from mike warnke <laughs> sitting under the tree philosophizing but as he was doing that he would pick guys that he thought would be good for the witchcraft thing and bring them into that you know, chain reaction of satanism or he would get take them out get them good and drunk, and then introduce them to a female friend of his who would pretend to be interested in the guy, hook up with him, and then gradually reveal that she was actually a witch and introduce him to witchcraft. And then he would trust it because he had been hooking up with this girl and he really liked her. Either way, they would get the guy to the second stage, uh, secondary meeting, and then the guys who stuck around and studied (laughs) just... learned how to become werewolves could eventually get (laughs) invited up to the third stage where Warnke was at the time. I feel like a YA novel is, it could come out of this. Like, (laughs) 
Maybe not. Actually, you know what? Maybe not a YA, just like an A novel. You know what I'm saying? Like <laughs> this reads like a novel. This reads like this reads like young adult uh, uh, fiction, except for that it's got like a lot of sex in it. Just like yeah. a lot of just like grimy, greasy, you know, 1960s Satan orgies and what have yeah. you. And if ugh. this were like expanded upon and made slightly more fun, I think it could have been a novel. And he probably would have not got busted for lying about everything, but we're going to get to that. I mean, literally, if he told the same story and it was just like, uh, and he just said, it wasn't me, it was some other, like, made it like a fiction book. Yeah. I mean, so, at this point, which would have been late 1965. All this was in, like, one year. All of this was in seven months. Like, we're on, like, wow. month three of everything that happened within seven months. So, during this time, Warnke says that he was working at a hamburger restaurant as a cook for his, like, cover story part-time job. He was also running drugs for Dean all night, participating in witchy stuff and hanging out at the college for recruitment, which necessitated him taking a lot of speed to keep up with that busy schedule. Uh, finally... Dean was moved up in the Satanist organization to manage a larger group of Satanists or whatever, and Warnke was installed as Dean's replacement as one of the three master counselors of the local witchcraft brotherhood. He talks about the initiation ceremony where he finally got the fancier, more demonic ring that he wanted, and then he met some people at the after party who were in the fourth stage of witchcraft. Oh, sh <laughs> There's another stage. There's always another stage. This is like... And Warnke is immediately like, oh, I gotta have that. Because when he found out there was a second stage, he was like, I gotta have that. And then he found out there was a third stage. He's like, I gotta get there. And then he found out that there was an even more demonic ring within a leadership position in the third stage. And he's like, I gotta have that. And then he found out on the night he got initiated into leadership of the third stage that there's a fourth stage. So that's, he's always chasing power and he's very blatant about that in the book. He doesn't make excuses for it. He doesn't even say like, oh, this was my unspiritual mind or anything Christian-y like that. He is so clear, like, I wanted power. I wanted to be the big guy. I wanted to be a big shot. I wanted to be in charge. See, I mean, I'd just be happy on stage one when you're just like going to the sex parties it seems like a lot less pressure yeah like you've got i, I don't even i don't want to manage people i don't want to be right? anyone's boss i don't want to be out here trying to sling drugs that sounds dangerous that sounds like a bad idea i just want to like go to the sex party where they give you the drugs and then you get to have sex with people that's like those people level one live in the dream Every like, I don't want to like go to a higher level where they're just like, "Hey, we're going to uh, sacrifice this woman at this altar." I don't want to be a part of that. That seems like that's a bit much, and I'm not really into it. Well, the sacrifice was uh, metaphorical. They just had her laying there, evidently. Yeah, and she, but like she's but like still. turning red. It's like a metalocalypse video. <laughs> it's like a, a death clock video, you know? Um, yeah. I'm not like, I, I, I don't want any part of that. Like, and I'm not interested in like sending demons after my enemies because I think that's probably not going to be a very successful thing. If I was going to be a Satan worshiper, I'd be a peaceful Satan worshiper. I'm just there for like the, the sex parties. Okay. It's good to know. <laughs> so 
<laughs> the thing is that um, I think it's going to become very swiftly obvious that Mike Warnke hates women except for the ones who he sees as sex objects. And I wanted to illustrate that with a fun quote about a woman that he met at the after party for his initiation ceremony. Ooh, go go for this it. This is what he had to say about her. Not you, baby. I like tigers, but I'm not sure I'm ready for a devil cat. Well, well, <laughs> we'll get to his dealings with women as we continue. Is how do we th- how are we ranking that line zero to ten? How uh, how misogynistic is it? I would say it's pretty misogynistic because this woman is like far above him in the Satanist organization and knows like a ton of stuff that he doesn't know but the only impression he seems to have of her is like do i want to have sex with her i mean and she's like a, a above she's like high ranking he's not even just like yo man i've all the respect in the world for your ministry but i'm not interested um yeah i'm really just trying to focus on me right now right. and how i can sling the most uh, uh uh pcp or whatever it is i'm slinging on this college uh, campus he doesn't really say what kind of drugs he was selling he implies that it was weed and uh amphetamine pills oh that's not even like that but he's selling weed and adderall right on, like, uh, he's he's like a glorified trent in the dorm hall he was a but he was a very big big shot though yeah he's yeah he's swinging the weed and adderall you're a I, you feel like you're a f-ing big sh- come on now come on so he was initiated as a master counselor and he needed to very quickly get ready to lead his first ritual because they didn't do any training at all about this <laughs> he came back from his initiation ceremony to find his apartment completely redecorated and beautiful lavish luxe things and he found two quote chicks who quote came with the apartment and he refers to them several times as quote slaves so these two women were there to cook and clean for him and prep his drugs for him and anything else that he needed they were basically sexy personal assistants this is like (laughs) extremely problematic you can't be doing sex trafficking mike warnke that's uh According to him, he did a fair bit of it. It's deeply wrong and horrible crime to do against another human being, man. It's like, what, what, what are you even out here doing, man? This is, and also, like, you, you see, Mike Warnke. Mike Warnke is not a like the, the, he is not a pimp. He yeah. is like, he, like you, you look at this man. I'm not saying that you got to be like good looking or handsome to be a pimp or whatever, but like this man is no, he is not a pimp. And he's also, he also is out here. He is like, yeah, pimping is easy. He's acting like it's just easy for him to do all this stuff. And as Ice-T said, it's straight up difficult. Oh, I was going to say Big Daddy Kane said pimping ain't easy, but you know, Ice-T works as well. (laughs) Um, (laughs) (laughs) Which my husband loves to quote because he loves Ice-T. Yeah. So, um... He implies that these women had a debt to settle with, like, the high-up Satanists, so it wasn't quite them being kidnapped and physically forced to be there. It was more like their work that they had to do to move themselves up in the Satanist organization. It's still still awful and gross. Just a slight detail. I mean, sex work is work. Uh, Satanic sex work is work. <laughs> what so the, he, no, you know what this is like. I, I bring this up once again. I think for like the third time in like three episodes is when Morgan was like, "You do not owe sex to anybody." I disagree with that, and I'm just like, 
Morgan and Mike Warnke and his satanic sex slaves uh, are all on the same page here. This is weirdly Warnke does have a lot to say about his sexual exploits, but it does not ever mention having sex with these women. They're just like hot and they're there and they prep his drugs, but he doesn't actually have sex with them. He doesn't say it's very it's odd. It was he missed a chance to brag, which is not like him. So he talks some more here about preparing for his first ritual, being really nervous about it, the dangers of if he messes up. I thought this was worth mentioning just because of how specific he got. So here's, this is a long quote from the book. The day before the first meeting at which I would preside, I still felt touchy about how to call on these demonic spirits. I had already read one case where two jokers had been fooling around and had stood in the wrong part of the circle, with their toes on the pentagram and the demons had crushed them to death. Their rib cages had caved in like balsa wood under an elephant's foot. Exactly the same thing had happened to both of them. They were twins in death. I did not want my first meeting to end that way. I went around practicing the words I was supposed to use to get the demon back where it belongs. I also had to make sure the pentagram was freshly painted on the altar stone every week so there would be no break in the lines forming it. If there was a break, a demon could get out, becoming a wild and unfettered demon. That would be dangerous. He, How many people get to be like a level three, like he was? It's not clear. I mean, it can't be a lot of people because if it's if it's not, I assume that it's not a lot of people. So what they're just going to get somebody up who's like a level three and is like leading demonic rituals, and then like if they f up, it kills them. Like there's no like yeah, like they they don't. You in. There's not training. There's not like a HR safety video with that weird like upbeat music behind it. When summoning demons, precise language must be used. <laughs> Failure to use such language could result in crushed torsos. Safety is very important to us here at Satan Incorporated. And then there's a video of a guy where it's like he says it wrong and then like the demons coming out him, but it like freezes and there's like an X over it before like it yes. actually crushes. <laughs> da 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 da. I'm imagining like a guy. He's he's not like even dressed like a Satanist. He's in like a white button down, um, or, or like a, a with with like maybe some some dots. He's got on a hard hat on, and there's like a forklift in the background. Oh, see, I was I was thinking it's more like a, a like a corporate office job attire rather than like a, a um like a factory or like a warehouse thing. Um, Warnke talks about all this demonic stuff as if, as if it's from his own experience. Satan's demon warehouse. <laughs> <laughs> but fortunately, he did his first ritual correctly and did not get smushed by demons. After this first ritual, he was confronted by two police officers who wanted to strike a deal between the police and the witches. Kind of a we won't bother you, you don't bother us sort of thing. They were able to work something out. He ponders about the power of satanism because it's got all of the you know police involved blah 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 and where did we see that right back in jack chick or in jonestown yeah that too so one day mike says he was hanging out with carl an old friend from before his witchcraft journey possibly due to the massive amounts of alcohol and probably several other substances in his system he talked a little more than he should have about his new witchcraft powers. Carl did not believe in these new witchcraft powers and said something like, Mike, come on, if this is real, you see that building over there, get a demon to burn it down and then I'll believe in you. 
So Mike did a quickie little summoning spell, sent a demon to burn down that building. They drove around for a while, and when they drove back by, sure enough, the building was burned down. And then Carl freaked out, and they never talked again. Uh, Wernke talks about the satanic handshake, which is just the rock on, like, for, like pointer finger and pinky finger up. That's the satanic handshake. This comes up a couple times. Like devil horns, like you're going to a Sabbath Yeah, like, a, like, like rock on. Yeah. I feel like if Satanist had a secret handshake, it might be a little more subtle than the rock on symbol. But what do I know? Maybe like your chest opens up and like the demon inside you reaches his hands out and shakes hands with the demon inside of the other guy. That would be way cooler. That would be way cooler. But he says he 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 sells this as if it's the Satanist secret secret handshake. Um, like, dude, that's not <laughs> secret. You see, like, 10-year-olds do that. It's a really bad secret handshake. Let's see. So after a while of being Master Counselor, Warnke decided to amp up their meetings a little bit, borrowing rituals that he experienced in the Catholic Church to make them a little more interesting. The coven had some witches who were pretending to be Catholics as a cover, and they were willing to steal consecrated hosts from the Catholic Church to use in rituals. Uh, Warnke says that they used that consecrated host and a mixture of human blood and wine to perform unholy communion. So, yes, Mike Warnke claims to have invented the modern Black Mass. Wow. Which I don't find credible. So, we're saying that Warnke is on team transubstantiation. We'll get to his current <laughs> religious beliefs. Or at this are. time, he's saying that that, that transubstantiation <laughs> yeah. is real and that like it actually like okay. Sure. <laughs> um in this section, he is continually talking about people astral projecting into his apartment uh, and or being able to get into his apartment when the door is locked and bolted without opening the door. He uh, like this is something that he says happened to him a lot. There's at least three or four instances in this book where people either astral projected into his apartment or got in without using the door. So, according to Warnke, he was really rising up the ranks of witchcraft due to his successful recruiting practices. However, things were about to take a turn for him at a witchcraft conference in Salem. We're going to go take up the offering. When we get back, I will tell you all about it. G'day, I'm Troy. And I'm Brian. And we're the hosts of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, an ex-evangelical podcast. We used to be loyal members and leaders in Australian Christian megachurches, but we're not anymore. I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist is an honest and hilarious peek behind the curtain at the weird, the worrying, and sometimes traumatic world of evangelicals and Pentecostals. We share our stories, we interview prominent guests in the global ex-evangelical space, and provide a platform for others to tell their stories about their time in evangelicalism and their journey out. Shortlisted at the recent Australian Podcast Awards, I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist gives you a unique global perspective into one of the fastest growing religions in the world from the people who actually lived it. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and I was a teenage fundamentalist.com. 
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Sadie here. If this is your first time listening to the Leaving Eden podcast, make sure you go back and check out episode 57. It's a primer episode for new listeners. That episode tells my personal story and gives you all the terms and information that you'll need to know going forward. Also, check out our cult true crime series, The First Family of Fundamentalism, so that you can get the whole cult story. If you like our show, you can support us by joining our Patreon, where we have extended and uncensored episodes, as well as other bonus content available. You can also join in the discussion in our Facebook group, that group is called Eden Exodus. Tell a friend, tell a family member, tell your worst enemy. The Leaving Eden podcast is a fully independent podcast, and we really appreciate your support. Now, back to the show. We are back from our break. We've just been talking about the start of Mike Warnke's story, but the turning point of the story is something that happens at a witchcraft conference in Salem. Sa- Sadie, would you like to tell us about that? Absolutely. He says he attended a flower child gathering around 1965 and turned on all the flower children to Lucifer. Then he was invited to a witchcraft conference in Salem, where he met a descendant of someone killed in the witch trials who was now a witch herself. This conference really went to his head. It made him feel like he had arrived. Here's a quote. The main thing was that here I was, Mike Warnke, making the scene with the top people in witchcraft from all over the U.S., I was a big man among big men. I was there because my superior talents had been recognized. What were his, like, he never practices anything. He's just uh, like a guy. Yeah. He's good at selling weed and Adderall. And this is the thing. He claims that he went from completely uninitiated to master counselor in about September. Three, three and a half months. Man. And then would have been going to these witchcraft conferences around like month four or five in Satanism. And he wanted to be a big shot. See, I can imagine if you like saw an ad for this on TV in, in like four months, get your Satan cert and, and you can start doing black masses, start doing like astral projections, start doing. And you can make an entire thing. career off of your decision to go back to JC. <laughs> Four months. Four, that's all it takes. Four months. To, I mean, it's like, a, you know, when people are like, oh, I'm doing coding boot camp. They learn to code. They do a coding yeah. boot camp. But this is like a Satanism boot camp. Warren Key is kind of well known for doing things quickly. This experience with the conference, though, it caused an unfortunate chain reaction of thoughts. So he was kind of sitting and thinking after the conference and he all of a sudden realized it hit him. That if the organization was so large, somebody had to be at the top of the organization. Whoa. And then through deduction, he realized it was Satan at the top of the organization. Whoa. No way. (laughs) Satan is in charge of the Satanist. (laughs) Who knew? 
And then he realized that all of the global powers and industry were then run by Satan and people who worked for Satan. Wow, man. So here's another quote. So that was how it was done. The global conspiracy buffs were right after all. Lee Harvey Oswald, James Earl Ray, Sirhan B. Sirhan, they were the pawns of a much bigger plot. But the buffs weren't giving credit where credit was due. Nor did Satan want them to, for such knowledge could turn men to his immortal enemy, meaning God. See, here's the thing that I don't quite get. Is that, so Mike Warnke says that Lee Harvey Oswald is uh, a, a part of the global conspiracy. John Todd says that JFK is still alive and part of the global conspiracy. So, right. Uh, John Todd also references Sirhan Sirhan. He's the guy that murdered uh, Bobby he's Kennedy. The guy, yeah, he's the guy who killed RFK. The thing is that that assassination didn't occur until June 5th, 1968. And this supposed story that Warnke is telling took place sometime in the late 1965 or early 1966. See, that's the thing. He's about to just be like, oh, yeah, I saw. And oh, here's and this is the other thing that I think is is odd, because this whole story is based off of the protocols of the elders of Zion, right? That this is all just like 99.99% of conspiracy theories are. But the thing is that this this is saying that Sharon Sharon, who killed Bobby Kennedy, was part of the global conspiracy. But Sharon Sharon killed Bobby Kennedy because he was mad about the United States supporting Israel. So how do you, how does it be that you have protocols of the elders of Zion, but this guy who killed Bobby Kennedy because the U S supported Israel, this doesn't make any f-ing sense whatsoever. This is just like, and that's no, clearly no. some kind like a, a, a retcon because that crime didn't happen until yeah, after even this yet. realization. Or maybe he was just at this party and this guy was like, hey, I'm Sharon Sharon. I'm about to kill RFK in like three years. Wait so for that Warnke's one. <laughs> realization continues to kind of spiral here because he starts thinking, well, why then? What would motivate Satan to run all of this? Well, I guess hatred of God and thereby hatred of mankind because mankind is God's creation. And then Warnke had the light bulb moment to end all light bulb moments. I am a person. This is maybe why I believe that he did at least smoke weed. (laughs) Oh, shit. If I'm a person, then I am one of mankind and I am a creation of God. And if Satan hates God, then he hates people. And I am a person. So Satan hates me, too. Or maybe it's Calvinist God who hates you just as much as Satan does. Uh, Calvin is God loves you, but thinks you should hate yourself. <laughs> no, so, so, um, and then he had like a, a scary vision of Satan. No, so, so Warren, he was starting to feel like he was in too deep, but he also felt like he wanted to keep going because he wanted to get to the fourth level of Satanism. I'm sure the scary vision of Satan and the sudden acceptance of conspiracy theories had nothing to do with all the drugs that he said he was doing. The drugs that he allegedly was doing were affecting him, though. Here's a quote about when he got back from the Satanism conference in Salem. My two chicks said I was getting meaner all the time, and they seemed bent on escaping their bondage to me. That's great. That's a great (laughs) sentence to put in print. (laughs) (laughs) I did not even really know just how my benefactors kept girls tied down to being a guy's slaves, and I did not ask. But I was 
But I was getting tired of Lorraine's drivel. You're getting tired of her. Dri- she has to like wash your dirty drawers and also like make do your Coke lines on the table for you. And also like, I guess, cook and clean for you in yeah. like grocery shop, <laughs> grocery shop. Also, f- you like probably just- possibly you didn't I mean, bother to tell us specific. she's got to do all like i asked hank my messenger to convey to the proper people that i had seen another girl at a party that i would like to have as a replacement hank hank from <laughs> from satan hr <laughs> I, tell, I tell you that wonky guy ain't right <laughs> I, I mean I, i'll never be able to think of the name hank without thinking of hank hill from i know king of the hill well maybe that's why hank hill sells propane because you know satan fire it works yeah i tell you what so almost you, uh continuing that quote i'm the almost mac daddy ins- of arlen <laughs> i'll tell you what <laughs> almost instantly it was accomplished carmen was installed and lorraine sent out to the streets he wait they literally just send women out to the streets with all of the knowledge of the satanic sex sex cult slavery and they're just I like i don't even know dude i she don't belongs to the streets like that's just, this woman never existed so it doesn't <laughs> matter wild man where he was still interested oh, i'm sorry go ahead just out on out on the streets just to like do whatever like i've man I, warren key hates women this is a fantasy about how much he hates women Warren Key was still interested in upping the ante on the rituals, so he introduced the killing of small animals for this purpose. Again, don't feel too bad because this never happened. And then later he had guys within the witchcraft or- organization, oh, um, CW for gross out body stuff. Later he had guys within the witchcraft organization volunteer to have a finger cut off for Satan. Interestingly, uh, he built this whole mechanism for it, according to him. Interestingly, he claimed that the rest of the coven would each like take a small bite of the severed finger. That is a gross detail that I would have spared our audience from if it were not for the fact that specifically finger eating shows up in some of Jack Chick's work. Right. Oh, yeah. No, I remember that with with the guy with the hand in his mouth. Yeah. Warren Key describes a yeah with with the beefy boys for Jesus. So Warren Key describes a growing paranoia and a meeting with Anton Levey at a Satanism conference. He says that he thought Levey was kind of phony. He really did not like. <laughs> he claims that he met he met Levey and did not like him. There was a guy who had left the coven, and Warren Key says that he sent a demon to quote convince him that silence is truly golden spare him no misery master make him see his duty to satan our father fire and pain shall be his portion his bone shall be broken and thus satan will take pleasure as i will so mote it be yikes yeah uh later he found out that the guy had been in a bad car accident the car had caught on fire and he had broken many bones this scared warnke because he wanted the power but was actually afraid of it Yo, he literally sent a demon out to this guy up, and the demon went and this guy up. This is... So, Warnke is getting more and more paranoid about the mafia being after him because of the drugs, or because it's a fake story. (laughs) And he's becoming more and more abusive to the girls who live in his apartment. He thought that all of this was happening because he realized 
that Satan was behind the whole conspiracy, and then he realized that Satan hated him, and Satan was in his mind, so Satan knew that he had realized these things, and now he was on Satan's bad side. Yikes. Um, just a funny quote. <laughs> or perhaps Satan was right now in the act of shafting me. Ew. That's... <laughs> so... <laughs> What? Another little CW body horror, the same thing I was talking about earlier. But the next time that Wernke did a ritual, he gagged when he was supposed to eat the piece of the guy's finger that they did at rituals. And that's when he knew that Satan was on to him. Oh, no. Oh, no. Just a question. When they're eating the finger, do they like cook it first? Or is it just like no. raw finger? <laughs> raw finger, evidently. No wonder he gagged. I mean, what if you got the nail? I don't, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how this was supposed to work. Um, oh, man. I mean, like you could just like cook it. For, I mean, there, it is Satanism. You have fire. You have, like, fires. you have fire. That's like your whole dealio is you got I fire. You just roast it in a little old bay. So uh major CW. <laughs> okay. So major CW for sexual assault in this next section once again, I, I do not believe that this assault ever actually happened at all, but it is still a disturbing story. So, as Wernke's doubts and fears were growing, he compensated by being more and more extreme in the rituals that he led. He says that he and his coven kidnapped a young woman to use as a, quote, unwilling virgin in their fertility rites, which he describes in great detail and make sure to note that he was too high on drugs to actually participate in her assault, but enjoyed watching other people assault her instead. Uh. So he's telling the story of this of this horrible, horrible thing, but he's excusing himself from the worst of the actions, which is interesting. I don't know. Like I feel like if you're like just there watching and not doing anything. That's like just And he as was bad. the one who kidnapped her. So so he's trying to make himself look good, but not really succeeding. He's literally like sex trafficking and he's like, but yeah. I'm not a, 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 a rapist. I'm just a sex trafficker. That's not as bad. Right. Like, uh... Uh, finally, after all of this, Warnke experienced a heroin overdose because Oh no. Yeah, because one of his made-up fantasy non-reality sex slave to sex slaves who lived in his apartment gave him too much and the coven members instead of taking him to the doctors that worked for the coven for some reason they decided to dump him naked outside of a hospital emergency room which makes zero sense to me because they gave him the drugs in the first place. They were responsible for the placement of the girl that gave him too much of the drugs. And they had doctors who were working for them. Why would they not want to preserve him as an asset since he knew so much and had been to all these Satanism conferences? He's got all this knowledge. He's done so much for the organization. You've got all this money invested in him as an asset. But no, he ODs one time and you throw him outside of the hospital emergency room. This makes no sense. Yeah, and all, he's like level three at this, but he's a pretty high yeah. level. 
the point that he is trying to make to his Christian audience is, see, Satan will say he loves you until he's done with you, and then he'll throw you away like garbage. But this story, this part of the story makes absolutely no sense at all. When he got out of rehab, he felt like he couldn't go back to Satanism for some reason. Like, he knew in his heart that they had kicked him out or something. I still, I read this like three times. I still don't understand it. Maybe what he's saying is that he was too proud to re-enter the satanic organization because he would have had to work his way up from step one again. Oh, right, because they couldn't trust him anymore. Yeah, because Satan knew that he had doubts and then Satan told his workers and then they told somebody and they told somebody and they told dean and dean kicked him i don't get this i mean if they wanted to kill him they could have just like you know he has a whole heroin overdose they could have just been like yeah let this guy, you just let this guy die just let him die yeah none of this makes any sense the only thing i can think of is maybe because of his brief because he had doubted satan in his mind he would have had to work his way up from level one again and his pride wouldn't allow him to do that that's the only thing that makes any sense uh but he for whatever reason felt like he couldn't go back to the satanic organization he didn't want to fully become sober so he sold most of his possessions for drug money, and then he decided to join the Navy. On his way to the Navy recruitment office, he says he ran into the girl that was involved in the sexual assault that he set up. She looked him in the eye and said that she loved him because she had now accepted Jesus and had forgiven all of the terrible things that were done to her in the name of Satan. This is... Bullshit. I I mean, this is very clearly like, you know, men writing women where yes. mm-hmm. the female characters in the story are some, some horrible thing will happen to a female character in a story as like a plot device rather yep. than as like, oh, this is a thing that actually makes makes sense going it, it's just like mm-hmm. oh no this is a bad thing that happened this is useful to the plot and it, it like only happens in order to move the the male protagonist story forward it's yep. uh, uh, so tired of that yeah write better books people and and i hope that our listeners will understand um, you know, the, the term alleged sexual assault is not a term that I almost ever use because I believe victims. I want to weigh every story of a potential assault with the absolute most integrity that I can. The only reason that I would use alleged assault is in a case like this because the way that he writes about her has me convinced that this assault did not take place. I mean, the way that he writes about literally everything makes me think that nothing, yep. that that none of this is true and none of these people are real. I like. I do not think this this woman exists. I do not think that this assault happened. Anyway, Warren Key decided instead of joining the Navy, he was going to end his life instead. Instead, so quick CW for talk of suicide. With his last $45, he bought a gun and a single bullet. He was having one last cup of coffee in the student lounge at the college campus and loading the gun under the table, which seems odd and made up. That seems made up. Um, $45 enough to buy a gun in 1960. 
Probably. That makes Whatever. sense because Lee Harvey Oswald bought the gun that he shot Kennedy with for, like, I think it was 35 or 37. It was in that range. Really? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, inflation. Yeah, I've seen the receipts. <laughs> <laughs> you know I'm into that stuff. Yeah. Okay. So, um, but just as he was loading this weapon with the intent to take his own life, student evangelists from Campus Crusade passed by singing a song about Jesus. And Warnke decided, oh, well, screw the Satanists. I'm going to live my life out of spite and, and screw those people from Campus Crusade too. I'm going to live out of spite to both groups, the Christians and the Satanists. And he threw the gun away in a trash can. That's a bad idea. Which seems like an odd thing to do with something, with anything that you spent your last 45 bucks on. Especially if you're going to go join the Navy, like you can have a gun if you're in the Navy. I mean, I feel like be useful selling it and buying food would also be a smart idea. So Warren Key joined the Navy. He goes on and on in his book about boot camp and what that was like and how his drill instructors were mean to him. But there were two guys in his unit who were Christians, and they took care of him. He was still having some drug withdrawal symptoms. They were nice to him, brought him water and blankets and whatnot. And they tried to get him to go to the chapel services with them. They left Bibles around. They were really trying to win him over. And he wasn't interested, wasn't interested. Finally, one of the guys left his Bible out and it was about to be room inspection. So he decided to put the Bible away and it had been open to John 3.16. And he read John 3.16 and decided to give his life to Jesus. Wow. Yep. So when he went back home after boot camp, there were two different friends who had been keeping some of his stuff for him, and he went to their houses to try to retrieve his possessions, and both of them said that people had come claiming to be his friends and taken the stuff away, which is odd because he previously said that he sold all of his stuff for drug money. I don't know. He started hanging out with these Christian girls named Lori and Sue when he had weekends off from the Navy. And as people from the witchcraft community saw him hanging out with the Christian girls, all of a sudden he started getting letters from Carmen, one of the girls who had lived in his apartment. She begged him to come back. She promised that he wouldn't get dumped again. Warnke thought that he was getting these letters because he had converted to Christianity and the coven was afraid that he would start telling his story and blow their whole operation open. As time went on, he fell in love with Sue. She would mentor him in the Bible and pray the demons away from him, which seems kind of sweet and wholesome unless you know the end of the story, which is not in this book, but we're going to talk about it. Mike and Lori were occasionally getting shot at by Satanists, but the Satanists always missed their shot. He says, quote, My would-be assassins were either lousy shots or the Lord deflected their aim. Hallelujah. Or you didn't get shot at. Much like John Todd did not get shot at in the parking lot of a bunch of churches. Man, that's... <laughs> Which is another similarity. Oh my gosh. Uh. So, chapter 10 opens with an absolutely wild story. Mike and Sue were setting up their house after getting married when Mike heard demons whispering in his ear saying, oh, you want to follow Jesus now? Well, let's see if you can handle what he went through. And then he says the demons penned him to the floor in a crucifix position 
and he felt pain like a nail through his hands and his feet and pain like a crown of thorns in his head and the sensation of blood flowing from his hands and feet. And his new wife prayed over him until it stopped. Just uh, usually in Christian circles, it's not super cool to directly compare yourself to Jesus. But I, I don't think so. I mean, that is- Mike Warnke didn't get the memo. In this book, that's one example that he gives of his wife, Sue's great spiritual power and connection with God and, and just a, an understanding of Christianity and a deep connection to Christianity. He keeps on talking about that the rest of the book. Just to recap, this book was published in 1972, and it's all the second half is all about his wife, Sue, and how she's a great Christian, and she helped him become a Christian, and he loves her so much, and he doesn't know what he'd do without her. This is going to become important later. So he and Sue start going to Scott Memorial Baptist Church in San Diego, and he meets Pastor Tim LaHaye, who had a conversation with him about the Illuminati and confirmed all of the conspiracy theories in Warnke's head. At least a quarter of our audience just groaned because they know this guy. For those who don't know him, Pastor LaHaye is like, he's like the fundy John MacArthur. Oh, interesting. He thinks he knows everything about everything. And I have always felt like they have similar personalities. Yikes. The last 80 so pages of the book, it reads like a novel like the first part did. There's a lot of dialogue and quotes from the different people, but the last 80 pages is like a really, really, really bad novel. And it's so much harder to get through than the first part. Does anything happen? Like, Yeah. Uh, so, Wernke has physical attacks by demons. He and Sue learned that when they invoked the power of the blood of Christ, that that would run off the demons like nothing else would. And then he gets shipped off to Vietnam. Weirdly, this is when the writing style suddenly gets good again. It's so strange. So, when he's talking about anything other than Jesus, the writing style is fine. It's at least what I would call like, oh, this is a solid Pulp Fiction novel. Sometimes maybe even a little bit better than that. But whenever he talks about Jesus, the style drops. It, it's boring. It's bland. It's hard to read. Do you think that that is indicative that Warren he isn't really that immersed in Christian culture or that he's not engaged with it? on a deep enough level to be able to talk about it with anything other than like surface level or like really like cliche phrases? No, I think the opposite. Maybe mm. I think he's so immersed in it that he doesn't have his own words for it. He's using other people's wording. Oh, just like ginger. Yeah. Uh, like he's immersed in groupthink. Keep in mind what Sadie just said about using other people's wording, because that's going to come back later. His experience in Vietnam was legitimately terrible, as a person would expect someone's experience in Vietnam to be. And this is why I have very little doubt that he went to, he did go to Vietnam. There are not only are there pictures, but even before I saw the pictures, his description was very vivid. Warnke was a medic in Vietnam. And he thought that he would be there to save lives. And he felt that was a better expression of his Christian values, like being there to save lives rather than take lives. But he found out that he would often need to take lives of other combatants in order to save his own people. And that was 
not what he felt like he signed up for. His description of Vietnam is genuinely harrowing. After coming home, so while he was in Vietnam, he began to drink a lot more to deal with the horrible things that he was seeing. And he also felt like God had abandoned him and he didn't pursue his relationship with God as closely. After he came home from Vietnam, he says that he felt terrible. He had strayed away from his beliefs and from prayer. And I think that's fair, but he came home and he felt that there had to be more levels to Christianity and he wanted to reach them. This is such an interesting echo of like he got to the second level of witchcraft and then he found out there was a third level and he had to get there. And then he got to the third level and found out there was a fourth level and he had to get there. So now he is Christian and there's got to be more levels. There's got to be something more. Some of his Christian friends were talking about receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which almost always refers to the practice of speaking in tongues, and that's what it's referring to here. Wernke didn't think he needed that because he had already been saved and baptized. Interestingly, Hmm. while Wernke was never IFB, he was in line with the IFB doctrine here. His friends, and he was running in... Jesus movement, Protestant, Pentecostal-ish circles at this point in his life. I don't think he ever really committed to a denomination until much later in his life, and we'll talk about that, but it's not included in the book. But in these Pentecostal-ish circles, Jesus movement circles that he was running in, his friends were really encouraging him, like, you do, you need this, you need to get the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Eventually, he did open himself up to receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and he says that he and his wife at the time, Sue, uh, both spoke in tongues and did indeed find another level of Christianity, which is what he was looking for. Did this level of Christianity give him like a better ring or like a better... (laughs) I don't think he got a (laughs) ring. I don't think he got... Uh, to girls who were dedicated to personal soul winning to live in his apartment and prep his Bible reading for him. <laughs> uh, not that I know of. But after Man, this... bummer. <laughs> <laughs> he could have had two IFB wives to do all his cooking and cleaning for him. Yeah. <laughs> so after... <laughs> After this experience, uh, Mike and Sue found themselves almost unable to stop working. They had such a burden for reaching people who had been impacted by the world of Satanism and witchcraft. And that's when they met this guy, Dave Balsiger, who had just finished working at the Melody Land Christian Center and was now working on an extensive project about the occult. Interesting. Melody Land Christian Center. Uh-huh. When I was reading about this, I read the word Melody Land Christian Center and it shifted like a gear in my head and I couldn't remember where I'd heard that before. And I went back and I looked at our John Todd episode. That's but that's where John Todd got in trouble. He was involved there. What was he doing there? If I remember correctly, the Melody Land Christian Center was John Todd's last step in the ministry right before he went on Christian television, or right before and right right after. It was one of many steps in his ascension up the world of Christian celebrity, up the ladder of Christian celebrity. 
and then he got booted out because he was uh doing his usual of like uh 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 uh. is that where he impregnated the teenager yes this is where he impregnated and i cannot remember what her actual age was but i do remember that she was his wife's sister she was 16 that's what it was and she was not she was underage so he like but then they didn't do anything about it i guess i don't know i think he got kicked out of melody land over this yeah yeah uh this is this is just like one incident in a very long line of improprieties and crimes on the part of mr john todd anyway so Dave Balsiger, who was also one of the co-authors of the book, The Satan Seller, had this conversation with Mike Warnke. And I'm going to quote from this conversation. He said that he had researched, quote, 11 recent criminal cases in this country, which resulted in 39 deaths. Occult practices wow. were directly or indirectly linked to each case. We discovered that these cases were not traceable just to Satanists, but were linked to specific occult practices such as tarot cards, astrology, witchcraft, reincarnation, astral projection, ESP, thought transfer, and mysticism. I'm just wondering how they did the research for this. (laughs) Because does it say, like, on the police report, cause of death, astral projection? (laughs) You astral projected into Mike Wernke's apartment one too many times. Yeah, and just like you, you astral projected out of your body and then you're you couldn't find your way back or something. It's like But there are no sources for any of this, so big we don't surprise. <laughs> right. So shocked. So we don't know what year this research would have taken place, what the definition of recent is, what the eleven cases are that he supposedly studied. There is no way to fact check it. Not only that, but there is so little online about Dave Balsiger. There's like his obituary and a Goodreads list of books that he wrote. And that's, there's almost nothing online about him. We'll continue a discussion on this later, but Warnke hardly gives any dates in the book as a whole. I Facebook stalked Mike Warnke because he has a public Facebook profile, which seems like a smart decision for him. Because if I were a big faker, I would want everybody to know everything about me, too. I mean, but he's in, like he's like a weird old church guy. He is definitely a weird old church guy. There's a lot of like America type stuff, not like the super toxic things that you sometimes see, but there's like a picture of Uncle Sam and it says, do not forget to vote. And uh, that sort of, that sort of thing. My, my point is that weird old church guys love Facebook. But he's um, not exceptionally toxic, pretty normal looking on Facebook. Um, but one thing that I saw is he posted a picture from his tour in Vietnam and it is marked as being from 1969. So we know that he was in Vietnam in 1969. We know that this conversation with Dave Balsiger happened about two years after he re-enlisted, which happened after he returned from Vietnam. This conversation references Rosemary's Baby, which came out in 1968. This conversation says that things started going wrong in public schools in 1970. And this book was published in 1972. 
So when we put all of that together, we could make a pretty good guess that this conversation happened in 1971 or maybe very early 1972, considering that the Manson murders happened in 1969. I would assume that that would be one of the 11 cases that Balsiger was looking into, uh, but where I would like to know what the other 10 are. <laughs> And then the conversation with Tim LaHaye supposedly happened in 1972, and contemporary articles that I found suggest that this book was very quickly written. It, it yeah. tracks. It just, there are other things that don't track, but we'll get to those. But there's just like no sources for any of it. No sources. I, I would love to know, like, what are these 11 cases? Maybe the sources gave the information to him via thought transfer, and that's where there isn't a record of it. <laughs> that's got to be it. It's not like there's, you know, details attached to it. You know, like there's a police report that says a woman in California was murdered by a gang of wizards. <laughs> yeah, very <laughs> much not that. I mean, they're, they're, like they just don't even give details on like what the cases are like specifically. Like there's I get, like so we couldn't even Paul Sand this one. We couldn't even right. just say, was there a murder involving a wizard in 1971 that he could have just like taken the story and like changed all the details. Like we couldn't do mm -hmm. that. Right. It's nothing but unsubstantiated claims. And that's why I read you the exact quote from the book, because I wanted to let you and our audience see just how vague it is. So this is another section that's just really badly written. Um, it goes on about how astrology is satanic, but fake. And the Ouija board is satanic, but real. The source is, of course, trust me, bro. <laughs> yes. Or, or maybe it's like a chain letter. <laughs> I feel like the source for a lot of this stuff legit could be chain letters. Like somebody got a chain letter and they're just like, this is real because my cousin Mabel sent it to me. In a, were there letters um, like that before there were emails? Cha oh, chain letters? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Chain letters were a thing before chain emails. Like it was chain. It's like now it's like Facebook memes. And then before Facebook memes, it was chain emails. And then before chain emails, it was chain letters. Hmm. And it was like, end with, send this to 10 people or the worst thing in the world will happen to you. You know, it's just... I, hate, I hated those. Um, yeah. <laughs> whether or not I actually have OCD, which is very much in question, um, <laughs> whatever it is I have, those things mess me up. I can't stand it. So at this point, Warnke gets another pot shot in about how fake he thinks Anto Anton LaVey was. And then he gets right back into the unsubstantiated claims. So I'm going to quote a couple of these for you. And this is... Let me see if I can pull up what page this happened on. Because I want to know if he's quoting Balsiger or if he's quoting himself. Okay, he's quoting Dave. Getting back to witches for a moment, did you know there is a rent-a-witch agency in Cleveland that will, that will, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Getting back to witches for a moment, did you know that there is a rent-a-witch agency in Cleveland that will rent witches for parties at a cost of $25 to $200? One of their witches is 15 years old, their junior witch. <laughs> Uh, very mean, next possible. very next paragraph on top of which witchcraft is being taught as an official course or as part of a lecture series in public schools all across the country under a variety of course titles including the literature of the supernatural dave said really 
showing us a brief survey, which he had done, which indicated more than 50% of the nation's public schools had introduced students to witchcraft in one form or another. So when they say witchcraft, what do they mean by that? Do they mean that they're teaching them about cultures that aren't Christianity? <laughs> like, they, I mean, they, they legitimate could be saying, okay, we're doing social studies. We're actually doing a, a course in which you're going to pick like a civilization or something. I mean, does he just mean yeah. that schools were teaching kids about Day of the Dead or something? I mean, they could literally be that. So I have a I have a paragraph that might clear this up. Okay. Um this is from about a page previous but quoting Dave. In America, about 80 different occults are practiced. Some of the more popular ones are those we just mentioned. Plus, Ouija board, spiritualism, table tipping, levitation, hypnosis, clairvoyance, numerology, reading tea leaves, phrenology, colorology, water divining, automatic writing, clairaudience, psychokinesis, pendulum healing, crystal gazing, dream analysis, person programming, mind control, fortune telling, materializations, voodoo, palmistry, meditation, white magic, I ching, telep telepathy, fetishes, talismans, seances. They're wait, where they're teaching that in public schools? That is a list of some of the 80 different occults that are practiced in America. I've also never heard of occult as like, I've heard of the occult, not like occult as like a plural. Yeah, that's now. a weird. Like, uh, 80 different occults are phrase. being taught. That's, nah. it, it just, it goes on for like this for several different pages. Um, just claims about everything, including what is being taught in public schools. There's a whole section about how the peace symbol is satanic, which I definitely heard growing up. Um, my main problem with that is that it severely limited my ability to own Lisa Frank lunchboxes because I oh, wasn't no. allowed to have anything with a peace symbol on it. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. So I had to really shop around if I wanted anything that was Lisa Frank. Um, it was it was difficult for me as a seven year old in the year two thousand. Let me tell you, you couldn't get a cute lunchbox with like penguins on it and 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 teddy bears and. I know like, I had one. I I must have been able to find something by Lisa Frank that didn't have the pink or the little peace symbol. That's that's a bummer, man. I feel um, bad for you. Fundies believe. So we're talking about like the the classic 1960s hippie peace symbol. It's like a circle with a straight line coming down and then two little diagonal lines coming off of the straight line. The fundies believe that that symbol represents an upside down broken cross and it is therefore satanic. Mm. So now you know. Uh, <laughs> uh, oh, uh, Belsiger also says that there are underground mail order Satanist supply companies that make millions of dollars per year. I mean, maybe he's just talking about how you can buy a Ouija board off of the like the Sears catalog. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he like he literally could be just being like, did you know that you can... So with Balsiger, Mike Warnke built the anti-occult witchmobile. And yes, that is what he really called it. No, I could not find a picture to tour the country and warn people <laughs> about the dangers of witchcraft. I'm imagining the mystery machine from Scooby-Doo, but it's driven by the villains from Scooby-Doo. <laughs> I'm doing like one more Google to see if I could find an image of the anti-occult witchmobile. Uh, I don't, I don't see any, unfortunately. 
You should send a message to Mike Warnke on Facebook and see if he'll send you a picture of it. Hey, do you have a picture of the anti-occult witchmobile? Oh, I have a picture of the Reverend Herschel Smith, who was a guy who worked on the witchmobile, holding a human skull, which is a tool of the occult, which apparently they traveled around with on the witchmobile. I also have a picture of a young Mike Warnke holding a, a pentagram at the Melody Land Christian Center. This seems like, for a guy who's like, I'm not satanic anymore, he seems like hella satanic. This is Yeah, I was also kind of surprised by how he looked. I'm sorry, I'm really sidetracked and this is going to have to go on Patreon. But I'm going to text you this picture. Hold on. Tell me, that is not at all what I thought he would have looked like as a young guy. It just came through. No, see, I watched his stand-up comedy. Oh, so you knew what he looked yeah, like. Yeah, so I know that he, I mean, after, like, his, like, older, he looked like this, but, like, Weird Al. Yeah. I'm gonna put, I'm gonna put a picture of this on our Instagram. I'm also gonna upload a video to, like, our Instagram and our TikTok of some of his, his, his comedy and some of the things that he would say. It's just, like, but yeah, you, you guys will get the picture. So, uh, sadly, I did not find an image of the anti-occult witchmobile, but he and Balsiger used it to travel around the country and warn people about Satan. Um, he was still working for the Navy and doing his anti-Satan stuff part-time. Finally, he was able to get his discharge from the Navy, and he went into full-time ministry, going to different churches and groups and preaching about the dangers of witchcraft and all of these things. That's when Dave Belsiger suggested that he have a press conference to get his name out as a speaker. And here's what Warnke had to say about the press conference. Quote, Dave took charge of setting up the press conference. He attracted about 20 people there, representing the wire services, radio, television, newspapers, and magazines. It was really a scene. At last I could manage to submerge the old Mike Warnke and feel I was merely an instrument of the Lord. It was God who was really getting all this publicity, and inwardly I passed it all up to him. Huh. So, he finally found a way to feel like the big man and get all the attention, but not feel guilty about it, because he was internally giving all the glory to God? Or is that just mm. a line and he was just happy that he felt like the big guy and got all the attention. I mean, you've heard fundamentalist pastors say that they're giving all the glory to God, but they're really just giant egomaniacs. And they're, I mean, you, you, you're very familiar with that. Yeah. It's one of those two things. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so either he was assuaging his own conscience by giving all the glory to God, or he didn't have a conscience and he was just making other people like him by giving all the glory to god so also you know it just seems to me like it, it on one hand it's very much the the fundamentalist thing to say i was such a horrible person i did xyz awful thing my vote my motivations were bad i was an awful person no like no matter what i did you know i was i was doing bad things and i was doing bad things from a motivation of evil mm -hmm. um like he's saying i was i desired to be the big you know the 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 head honcho i i wanted to be a top dog and satanism was a way for me to do that like that's legit what he was saying and he's unapologetic about that fact and now he can say you know he can come back and say look at this turnaround that i've made i'm still the top dog but it's not but i'm giving the glory to god now so it's okay for me to do that mm -hmm. like that's 
and that's why that's the appealing message. Yes. It's- so in the press conference, even he went into details about his past, how he had eaten flesh and drank blood and been a satanic high priest and cut people's fingers off and so on and so forth. And of course, the shock value got him a lot of attention and a lot of offers for speaking gigs. And he was off to the races for a multi-decade career, which is where the Satan seller ends. It's it's really huh. a unique. It's a unique thing within the Christian world when you come out and give your testimony of having done really, really terrible things. Because you do have to live with the shame of being, oh, that guy or that person who, that girl, that person, whoever, who did really terrible things. But you are also glorified for having turned away from those terrible things. So it's almost like a transaction or a trade. You give the community your scandalous story and your much blessed testimony and... The price that you pay is the shame that you feel from the community and potentially less trust from the community because of your past. But what you receive in return is also the praise and adoration of the community. That's so weird. That's it's so a weird transactional thing. Like you give them the power to judge you for what you've done hoping to receive even more power back from the community because you gave a good testimony. It's a weird power dynamic thing. But some people, like Mike Warnke, seem to have an innate understanding of that power dynamic and an innate ability to use it for their own benefit, which is what he did. What are your overall thoughts on the book? Aside from like the obvious, you know, this guy's a grifter. I think my biggest observation from this book was how different the writing style is when he is talking about Jesus as opposed to when he is talking about Satanism or Vietnam or anything else that isn't Jesus. And I think my most important pattern that I saw in this book was his desire to be the big guy, his desire to be the number one. So my thought is about the book's title. The, the Satan seller. Hmm. In in the course of this book, he's is he really selling Satan to people? Because like what he's doing is no, he's, he's more recruiting for Satan. Yeah, I mean the the thing is that like what's his pitch? His pitch is come do drugs and and have sex. You know, we we have drugs, sex orgies. Uh, you can come along. It's a great time. That's not a difficult pitch. Sex, drugs, they sell themselves. You don't have to sell them. They're, like they you just provide them. That's the thing. I feel like my um, when he's talking about being a Satan seller, I almost feel like he's telling on himself in that he is uh, in that what he's doing now and going or, or, or what he was doing when the contemporary to when the book was released, going around on his speaking tours and talking about that is him selling Satan mm-hmm. to an audience of people who are who are eager to buy up the to to like buy this cock and bull story about satan hmm. it's like that's what he's talking about when he's saying the satan seller he's now a satan seller he wasn't a satan seller when he was actively recruiting for satanism which he probably never actually did um i don't know i that's that's my thought about it that's a really interesting observation 
And so that is where our story is going to end today. We have discussed what Mike Warnke says in his book um, this week. But next week, we're going to talk about the article from Cornerstone Magazine that pretty much fully debunks pretty much everything that he said um, beyond the lunacies that we pointed out when we were discussing this book itself. Right. So this week we have told you about him in his own words, and next week we'll find out what his friends and family had to say about him. And then we're going to decide whether or not Mike Warnke or John Todd is the originator of the story. It's going to be a great time. I'm really excited for it. Make sure that you guys send in your Q&A questions to leavingedenpod at gmail.com. Not podcast, leavingedenpod at gmail.com. Um, you can follow this show on social media on on facebook and instagram and tiktok at leaving eden podcast on twitter at leaving eden pod join our facebook group and our subreddit reddit.com slash r slash eden exodus facebook.com slash groups slash eden exodus sadie do you want to plug your social media sure thing you can follow me on instagram at sadie carpenter music you can follow me on twitter at hell yeah sadie and on tiktok at sadie carpenter one and you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at G-A-V-R-I-E-L-H-A-C-O-H-E-N. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. You guys have a great day. Bye-bye. But old rolling river of time Peeled me into many days No regrets, no Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.